Hi guys, so uh, we're really cool, and we're going to talk about how cool we are, and I think it mostly comes down to we're way cooler than everybody else, and I personally, I do hear that I'm cool all the time, but I, I don't think I feel it enough, because cause if I, you know, I feel like I'm so cool that I, I should be hearing it way more often, you know, like, like way more. Um, um, yeah, you know, I, um, you know, I, I found the government file on me. And uh, and uh, I was listed as fat and unimportant, but then they realized that it was a mistake, and so they changed it to ripped and sweet. The Big Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talking During the Movie, the show where two mentally unstable misanthropes talk about new movies and movie news. I'm Mike. And I'm James. And uh, this is episode number 104 we need to talk about Mike and James. Don't we? Don't we all? So, yeah, the, our podcast is just going to be us now. <laughs> and we're two mentally unstable misanthropes talking about two mentally unstable <laughs> misanthropes, which is actually true. Yes. yes. Uh, so, I was I was bad this this Bad boy. This week, bad boy. And I didn't go see Beale Street. Who's a bad boy? Uh, Who's I, a bad boy? I am. <laughs> And so I had pitched this idea um, either before the recording of the last episode or the one before um, about taking these two movies from earlier in the year that uh, have been featured pretty prominently um, on people making their year-end lists. They've been pretty uh, strongly acclaimed as two of the best films from the last year. Um, That is Paul Schrader's First Reformed and uh lynn ramsey's you were never really here which can also be considered a 2017 movie but whatever um yeah no 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 that doesn't that doesn't count yeah, i mean okay. i've heard i've heard this shtick before i just want to get out this rant right now before it matters i've heard this okay. shtick before premiering at film festivals is not a release movies all the time premiere at festivals and never get released yeah it happens all the time a theatrical release in the in your in the in film critics country, that's the year. Okay, okay. deal with it. All right, there you have it. Yep, <laughs> close be, the book. I mean, I think it did debut in France, not in a festival before, like in November or something. No, no, it did. It did. That's why you know oh, I brought okay. it in the country as well. well. Like in America, like if you were if you were trying to see it here, you you couldn't have no option. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and right now we're seeing. I think like if you go to Critics Top Ten, you know, um, Phantom Thread is is circling around the fifties, which is oh, is it? Yeah, <laughs> it was number two on uh, Sight and Sound. Like enough global critics hadn't seen it until this year, um, which makes sense because PTA is a an American filmmaker, so it, it, America's probably the first or one of the first places it came out. Um, but yeah, so anyway, th- these two movies i i saw them very close to each other and um they kind of illuminated one another for me um they share some similar uh themes but they explore them in very different ways so i thought that it would be interesting to talk about them in conjunction with one another and do kind of a double review um so that's what we're going to do this episode and I uh, I saw these movies very far apart from one another. <laughs> I saw First Reformed uh, early summer, I want to say. 
it was a it was a long time ago <laughs> that I actually ended up seeing it and then yeah I and then I saw you were never really here on Amazon Prime just like a couple weeks ago maybe when I was just I'm you know we're still doing catch up on 2018 mm-hmm. trying to fit in those before we can really say what we feel about the Academy Awards uh, which did which did the nominations did get released today and one of these films was nominated for I believe one award. <laughs> Is that true? Is that true? I think first performance for, only for, for a screenplay. Yeah, it was only. I am I pretty sure you were never really here. Um, true to its name, was not really there. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh. uh, yeah. So first performed, it is its only Oscar nom, and yeah, you were never really here. I'm pretty sure never did not get an award. No, it did not get an award nomination, and that's I'm sure in part because it had a female director. But hey, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean. I mean, I laugh, but it's probably mm-hmm. not super far off base. Um, d- never mind the fact that she's one of the most consistently great filmmakers working. Um, we'll get we'll get into that, but yeah, yeah we so actually these are do not, have these are not awards, darlings. Um, which good because fuck the awards, darlings. The awards, darlings this year are bad. Uh, yeah, I God. mean. So we are going to talk about a little bit of movie news, actually, this time, because I, I feel like we can't avoid it. I do want to say, first off, I, I I often feel like I don't I don't want to waste too much energy on on. I, I'll, I'll talk about the Oscars all I want. I will talk about them. I love actually delving into the politics of them, because but you got to recognize that that's what it is. It really is just a it's a political organization. Uh, in terms of you know movie politics and campaigning and schmoozing uh, and it's, advertising it's, and it's 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 a little different than a political thing because politics is about how power communicates with the people. Um, the Oscars is about how power communicates with itself. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I will say, yeah, I did. Well, I have been getting into this this uh, YouTube channel called Be Kind Rewind as of late. And it's like, it is Oscar politics, the channel, and it's just so fascinating. Um, she Right now, she's going through like every every Best Actress winner, and she talks about the race going into it. What, what uh, like, you know, she talks about things like Jane Fonda's like Vietnam trip that almost derailed her Oscar campaign, you know, things like that that are not about the movies themselves. And I find that really fascinating. And I think that's really what we have to do when we when we talk about the Academy is recognize that these decisions aren't made purely, if at all on a quality basis. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk about the Academy. I'm happy to talk about the quality. I'm not going to say like, I'm, I'm mad at the Academy for being their own club that picks their own private movies. It's like, yeah, whatever they, that's, they do that. I think the movies they picked largely are not very good. So, I mean, they sell, as an institution, Hollywood short. I yes, think, yes. I think it's fair to say. Um, like, and it, it is interesting too because it's, it's the year where because normally we talk about the difference between some of the Golden Globes, which is a critic-voted awards show, um, and the Oscars, which is an industry-voted awards show. And how well, I, mean, that, I don't know, Golden Globes isn't really critics, right? I know Hollywood Foreign Press. Yeah. Um. Uh, but either way, it, it tends to result in like two very different approaches. 
And what's interesting is like this year they're both falling into the same traps that I I kind kind of thought were the Oscars bread and butter, which is like the self congratulatory, uh, <laughs> a baby boomer ego trip. But yeah, <laughs> you know the the well done me uh, shallow gesture toward so, uh, racial tolerance. Um, yeah. I mean, what we're what we're talking about here is Green Book, and I of course. And I want to I want to preface that this is all everything I say about Green Book is purely based on my impression. I haven't yet seen it. The most recent thing I've seen Mahershala Ali in is the first three episodes of True Detective season three, uh-huh. which are great. Totally recommend. Good. Good. Um, I, I haven't watched it yet. I I was hoping. I heard it was to to some degree returned to form for the show, so I'm, I'm happy to hear. Yeah. That. No. I'm uh, I'm de- I definitely want to keep watching. It's awesome, and. But yeah, I have not seen Green Book yet. I'm going to soon because I really want to have a take on it. My impression of the movie, and this appears to be backed up by uh, several critics that I follow, is that it is that sort of movie about race directed at white people who want to be reassured that they are not racist nor part of a racist system. And in a movie where, sorry, in a year where I've seen movies like Black Klansman, if Beale Street could talk and sorry to bother you, that comes off as, uh, I think exactly you put it best, is just selling the industry short by, if that is if this, if this that is what the Green Book turns out to be, this sort of race-swapped driving Miss Daisy, then uh, yeah, it, it, it does sort of show that, I mean, it makes the case that this is the this is the best movie about race that Hollywood can offer, and it's just not so. I mean, hey, we're far from the first people to point it out, but Spike gets to lose to the same movie twice, uh, th- thirty years apart. Uh, yeah, thirty years apart. A uh, man, man, that's it. That's <laughs> mm-hmm. that's so silly. I mean, I part of me thinks like. Something like a Star is Born will just like swoop in. <laughs> See, I was I was prepared for a Star is Born to be the vanity project of the year, like to, that that kind of gets a lot of buzz, and that would be fine with me. I, I wasn't the biggest fan of it, but I can admire it for what it is. And like, yeah, if you're gonna have like a a an ode to hubris and stardom, go you know do that that that's fine and yes i understand it's a it gets a little dark in there but it's it is very much like the big the big movie about aspiration and uh you know a rise to fame that the oscars just love and (laughs) it's a crowd pleaser and everyone would be well not everyone but people could get behind it by and large um this is just like tone deaf it's like it's like they know that there is a that there is like social tension bubbling up all over like like tension all over America but yeah. they cannot properly interpret it they cannot they they cannot see it through other viewpoints and they're it's like re- reverting to the exact same narrative tropes that they've been embracing and have been like parodied for for decades yeah i mean let's 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 delve into that a little bit just so you kind of know where we're coming from so i'm 
what, what, do I, what I mean when I say that, oh, this looks like this pat yourself on the back, these movies that people often put up as the shallow, like, you know, make the white people feel good movies, Green Book, uh, Driving Miss Daisy, um, what's the Sandra Bullock one? You oh, the, the blind oh, side. Oh, the the blind side. The yeah. blind side. Yeah. What? Here, here's the main thread that they all have in common. They'll have an audience surrogate white character. That's someone. That's a white character in the movie with whom the audience is supposed to identify, and they get to sort of experience secondhand, mind you, the injustices that minorities go through, and then they get to a appreciate that appreciate themselves for knowing it and then the audience gets to say well i'm like that person and that person isn't racist i'm not a racist mm-hmm. <sighs> everything is fine in the world um whereas these other movies that we mentioned black klansman i mean he has a there is a white character main prominently but he's jewish and he, he's not really <laughs> he also if you want to talk about like character efficacy um, he almost never dictates the narrative. Like he's, no, no, God no. Um, so, and sorry to bother you is really unconcerned with a re- having a reassuring character in it. <laughs> the only the only white character that I could think of, the, I think the only named white character in that movie is Army Hammer, who is turning <laughs> motherfuckers into <laughs> horses. Into horses. He is. He is a psychopath. Yeah, that guy is. That guy's insane. And, and yeah, I mean like. Um, if Beale Street could talk, I I don't think it had a had a named white character. You know, these are these are movies that don't have that access point that aren't trying to reassure white people that everything is okay. <laughs> because, well, a everything's not okay, and b as a white audience member, you don't need it. it it's a the the idea of needing that entry point, or you're not going to be able to empathize with with black people, is absolutely a constructed problem by white hollywood unless you just are actually unwilling to like embrace stories by people of color it it's a non-issue um in fact it's important to be able to experience other people's stories and be exposed to other people's stories so and and 2018 was a great year for that and i i think my biggest um I guess probably my most overarching criticism and what I just regret the most is that while there are black filmmakers and predominantly black movies being represented here, they seem like a matter of like it's, it's the ones that seem like a matter of obligation, like uh, as a way to get out of the Oscar. So white (laughs) get out. Damn it. (laughs) As a way to elude the Oscars so white hashtag um, and nothing more. No interest in like kind of uh, properly rewarding this like this new development in the history of film that I really thought took center stage this year and really provided a lot of uh, you know encouragement for artists going forward. Um, I, I just I, I see a matter of tact full <laughs> diversity here yeah well, yeah so i mean rather than actually oscars, embracing this oscars so white is such a great hashtag and it sounds so it bad for them right it whereas is. now the criticism is 
Oscar's not nuanced. You know, it's like they're fine. They're fine having that criticism. That's well, a, they're totally okay with it because that does not catch on. Yeah, it's it's it, you, it's not conducive to a snappy hashtag, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I mean, Oscars suck. There you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I feel like they went for in a lot of categories. That I see they they went for the low hanging fruit, and I would love to see like more daring choices. Mm-hmm. And then in some cases too, like best documentary feature. How do you not? How do you not do? Won't you be my neighbor? What in the world went through your minds where you I, were like, no, a documentary about Mister Rogers? <laughs> come, come on! I mean, honestly, just I give thought, him the damn nomination. I thought that was going to be like kind of the everyone wins nomination. Yeah, like yeah. people, like people like it, and also. Hey, look! It's a it's a generally uplifting, reassuring documentary about a figure that everyone likes and who wasn't a kid toucher. How amazing <laughs> is that? Like, like it's. <laughs> I didn't know I needed a feel good film this year, and I did, and that was it. <laughs> I know it was it was it was wonderful. Um, um, I mean, yeah, I, the, I'm scratching my head at a lot of these and we could definitely go through one by one okay. I think the one more that I just really want to do though is to say Vice um, yeah actually I'm glad you brought I, I was going to I was going to name drop it if you didn't <laughs> so I did I did see Vice yeah um, what it's, so, it's, it's all it's all the Hollywood left uh, it, it's basically just saying huh <laughs> That Dick Cheney, huh? And Bush, what an idiot! I mean, well, here's the thing. I I don't. I think you're right about a lot of the praise toward it, but the the movie itself is really trying to illuminate just how novel and just how crazy Dick Cheney, Dick Cheney's vice presidency presidency was, and mm-hmm. how he totally changed the position from something that. You know, I mean, they said in the movie, like, all the vice president does, did before Dick Cheney was wait around for the president to die. And mm-hmm. um, and that, and he was like, I don't want that to happen. I want to seize a lot of power from George Bush and use it as though I was the president however I please. And it was, it mm-hmm. was crazy. That's insane. And I love that this movie is trying to shed a spotlight on that. It's also just a mess. Um, I mean, and part of that is, like, Adam McKay's very like big short inspired directorial style that's that is perfectly entertaining in the moment and then comes off as just a big distraction when you think about it or return view and mm-hmm. also Christian Bale now there's going to be a lot of a lot of takes about Christian Bale not giving a good performance or relying too much on affectation my problem with his performance is that he really just didn't have a lot to work with Mm-hmm. He played the entire time. The script called for him to play one note with Dick Cheney, and that is that sort of vaguely raspy, monotone voice that doesn't show outward emotion. And that's fine. I get it. Even if you're, even if you're going to say that that's just how Dick Cheney was, so so Adam McKay couldn't write him any other way. I get it. It's just dull. Yeah. I mean, that's all there is to it. I don't know how you can say like. This is this is nothing more than an impersonation for you know an hour and a half two hours and like I'm not holding that against Christian Bale it's a really good impersonation he just didn't have a lot to work with so I don't that to me I don't say is like oh yeah get that guy an Oscar but it's a biopic 
and we all know how the Oscars loves biopics, and we all know how they love weight guys gain. and weight gain and <laughs> like transformation and yeah. So it's mm-hmm. it's it's got Oscars written all over it, but it is just the most hands down the most undeserving performance on the list. Yeah, um, yeah. It's funny because because that seems kind of like the same phenomenon of you know nominating green book except just directed toward specifically the political situation rather than the racial situation faced in our country right and um again taking all the wrong lessons from it not that we need to reassess the grassroots of our political milieu and kind of figure out what you know, motivate so many people to make destructive political decisions, <laughs> but uh, to once again caricature and ridicule um, easy targets, easy can you know targets on the right for you know liberal, you know tar- targets for liberal jokes basically. Yeah, well, I mean um, that's when they 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 went they also went into like. Dick Cheney's more like seedy, in, insidious ideas, and how he like molds public thinking. Like it, it was his team who was behind, you know, rebranding the estate tax as the death tax, mm-hmm. and how and and examine how that took on like wildfire to well, celebrities, even like Whoopi Goldberg saying like I don't want to get taxed just because I die, you know. <laughs> and you know what? That is actually really really great. Um, however, I don't know how to break it to adam mckay but this goes way beyond dick cheney (laughs) like oh i know and that's the thing like it it does come off as a lot of this being traced back to to dick cheney i was like this is going on before and it has been going on since so there's whole bits actually speak honestly he might do pretty well to adapt something like um dark money which would be, oh, quite, would be I'd quite actually task. watch that man but there's like you know kind of unveiling this whole network of, of moneyed interests and like create basically manufacturing grassroots movements that actually become real grassroots movements because they're you know disconnected and angry people see them yep. and latch onto it like that growing grass great. out of astroturf yeah but again it's an entire exactly but it, it, it's an entire system that propagates this it's not with yes a handful of wealthy families at the top of it but it's not dick cheney and george and his lackey george bush and the same people we've been laughing at for the for you know since the year 2000 right oh and you just reminded me sam rockwell is in this movie for all of like 30 seconds and wait oh because right the way they structure it to my knowledge is like um it's like a straightforward biopic well not straightforward but like it's a biopic of dick cheney's earlier life for like the first two-thirds and then the credits roll and then he gets a call from george bush yeah it's probably about halfway through but yeah he gets a call from george bush and george bush was in it before i oh yeah he was in it for one scene before and then he got called up and then he was in it for maybe like uh, I want to say like a combined like five six minutes um, okay. for the rest of the movie and and I'm just like man I've seen there's been there's been some Oscar nominated performances that have not been on screen for that long 
you just flew by Sam Rockwell. I think I think uh, your Oscar win from last year is, is buy, buying you a lot of star power right now. Uh, yeah, and that's fair. I mean, I loved it. I liked loved his performance in Three Billboards. I still like that movie a lot, and I will you you know you can at me all you want. I will I will gladly have a reasoned discussion with you about why I think that movie transcends your criticisms. <laughs> James is a racist. Okay, all <laughs> yes. right. No, no it um, is at Jam Cozy is oh, a racist. Oh, right. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, the movie's about how you shouldn't, how retribution is not the I, end-all, be-all. I, I, it's I'm not going to go into a rant. It's been far too long since I've seen three billboards for me to have any sort of uh, political debate on it. Um, uh, no, I love Sam Rockwell and like almost everything. But yeah, I, anyway... It's, it's just a, a different manifestation of I think the same fundamental underlying problem, which is the academy. I mean, like, big surprise, the academy is very disconnected with <laughs> just the experience of the average American, and it should reflect. It, I, I wish it reflected that more in its nominations. It doesn't. I didn't expect it to. But didn't expect it to be fuck, this. Tony bad. Collette. Tony Collette. I was just about to say Tony Collette. What? Uh, uh, man. man, I am. I am just. I mean, I'm so, they, they, I, I know genre film, but like they made an exception with, uh, uh, with uh, Sigourney Weaver. No. Oh. Sigourney Weaver and Aliens. I think that was the first nominated uh, sci-fi performance. Um, right, I I thought we were doing the horror movie like Get Out was nominated last year for horror oh, movies, that, so that that as well. Um, I even picked up an acting a nomination for Daniel Kaluuya, which was a huge surprise. Oh yeah, ah uh, that um, I mean, I I think it had the benefit of being both a great movie and also something that did actually speak to the to the prevailing the zeitgeist. Zeitgeist. Yeah, and that's um, why I was I was really skeptical of whether or not I was really skeptical of whether or not Get Out would actually usher in more horror movie respect, or, or if it was just because of its political undertones. I mean, deserved movie. I like mm-hmm. the movie a lot. Don't at me. But <laughs> um, but yeah, I I think with I think with a movie like Hereditary you're gonna completely shut out, especially in the category that. Everyone thought, like, if you're going to give it something... I mean, if you're not going to give it anything else, give it that. I don't think the Academy respects horror movies. I just... Bold stance there. Um, <laughs> but, like, it didn't even get a cinematography nom. Like... No. That should, she should have got Best Director, too. I'm just going to oh, throw I've, that out there. Should have gotten every... It should have gotten Best Picture. Um, kudos... I don't say this super often... Um, but kudos to the New York Times art section for putting the most positive spin on the nominations that I could possibly think of. Oh, really? That, well, just like the headline was just like Roma and the favorite lead with 10 nominations. Each. I'm like, okay, well, that makes it yeah. sound like it's going to be a pretty promising, uh, promising ballot. Um, and uh, just it's all downhill from there. Well, I mean, also, too, we haven't talked about how Spike Lee picked up his first yes First, and his first director nomination. <laughs> what? It's, yeah, it's because he's not an inside man. Yeah, no, he's he's not. I think like I oh, think like Boots Riley is that uh, outsider for him he, now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I would actually things... be a little disappointed. I think Boots Riley would have been a little disappointed if he did get like nominated for anything. <laughs> well, he he went on a not a tirade or anything, but a big tw- Twitter explanation because uh-huh. a lot of people were adding him and talking about the movie and saying. I mean, I did. I was like, "Hey, Academy, sorry to bother you, but uh, no. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then they." And it, so a lot of people were talking about why that was the case, and he he followed up on Twitter. He's like, guys, but the film didn't get a nomination essentially because we didn't want it to. We didn't campaign for it. We didn't try to get a nomination. We didn't buy the the for your consideration ads. You know, we yeah. didn't we didn't send out screeners to Academy voters. We didn't go to the dinners. It's just it's not what we did. And if you yeah. do those things, you you can you have a good chance of getting an Oscar. If you don't do those things, you're not going to get an Oscar. That's, and that's why it's a very measured and and accurate assessment of the situation. I like that. And that was like <laughs> that was a sobering. Well, that it it sort of like helped me come to this more resolved conclusion of like, well, why didn't why didn't they pick out the good movies? You know, it's like, well, you know, I mean, these aren't really the movies that do the things that need to be done to to get mm-hmm. an Oscar. Yeah. Um. I mean, I, you know, eighth grade also. Oh, yeah. God. Like, I'm, yeah. There, there could have even been an actress nomination in there, to be honest. I would have been all over that. But again, it, 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 it would, again, be a very unconventional type of performance. Yeah, that's my uh, thing, that they could have they could have gone too. for something more daring. And they, like, as I said, I think a lot of the Oscars, a lot of the categories are just a low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Like oh, who are the most flashy movies with the most flashy performances? Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that movie sucked, guys. Uh, yeah. I did. I did. I have actually. I. I, I was. I was pleasantly surprised because I looked at this and I was like, wow, I've actually already seen all the Best Picture nominees. That that doesn't happen usually. Yeah. <laughs> oh wait, no, I forgot. Green Book. I'm seeing that soon. <laughs> I mean. We've we've seen that movie before. <laughs> Probably, I'm keeping an open mind. I remember when it was. Pl- I I'm back back in my day. I remember when they made this movie with Morgan Freeman and Jessica Tandy. And the and the driver was the supporting was, actor. Was, yeah. Not the and the not the lead actor. Well, you see, they go through the arc. They go through the change. So it's their movie. Yeah. <laughs> Oh uh, man, that's just that's the most that's the funniest part about it. Is it's like Morgan Freeman, and 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 uh, Viggo Mortensen. They're playing, they're in the same role, but I guess one of them is leading and one of them is supporting, and mm-hmm. maybe you could decide which one that is without knowing based on the individual actors' races. Take a guess. <laughs> Yeah, you know, get back to us. Yeah, no, no, the winner gets no prizes. <laughs> no prizes. No prizes at all. Because of, because of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, cool. I mean, yeah, uh, we've probably ranted longer than we should have. There's a lot of long list of snubs, and I think they're all going to be on our on our top ten list at the end of the year. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, yeah yeah it's uh so yeah this is gonna be like yeah half to more than half of oscars rant but hey whatever it's it's a big deal it's 
we keep saying it's not and it is it's a big deal um but that doesn't make it any more tasteful and like it's it matters like it sucks because the oscars matter otherwise so the oscars are the they're the only like they are every year they are a historical record and I've noticed I said a historical, not an historical. I hate all of you. I I hate that too. I'm glad you fall on that side of it because we disagree about the Oxford comma, but at least it's, we can it, both get behind that. Yeah. It, they are each each Academy Award ceremony is a historical record of the the supposedly best movies out there and the the of the, of that given year. And the issue is they're the only game in town. So, like, when the history books are written, there's nothing else to go off of, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's no other... I mean, there's... That's why I really like things like Critics Top 10 and, you know, and the Metacritic scorecards that they're keeping, too, because this these also help a lot to establish, like, okay, what... Maybe let's look at something else, but still, the Oscars, they may be the only game in town, and if not, they're the, certainly the biggest, so... Yeah, it's. I mean, it, the way the industry sees itself does matter, and if it's taking the wrong lessons from these huge, momentous events in the world, uh, and in our, you know, national ethos, as, you know, that's a big deal. That's that that's really unfortunate, and I don't want to see that. So that's why it's probably worth. You know, getting, you know, lightly chastising them for forty-five minutes. It's yeah, you know, because we want to create our own record to when his, history looks back at a Green Book, a year that Green Book won Best Picture. They can also look back at our podcast and say that ours, we disagreed. Yeah, you know, Wally will find it in the <laughs> in the rubble of humanity that we leave behind, <laughs> buried under copies of Green Book. Yeah. Uh, Watch that be the movie that he ends up fixating on <laughs> instead of Hello Dolly. Um, one one question that I have: Does mm-hmm. Kevin Feige really give himself sole producer credit on these Marvel movies? It looks like it. Because yeah, I just clicked on Black Panther in the Oscar nominations because it was like, oh, Kevin Feige producer. I'm like, what? Yeah, it's just him. I mean, it's produced by Marvel Studios. Which, which, uh, I mean, did no one else? He is the work? only cre- He is the only credited producer. But I mean, is there no one else at there's Walt Disney Studios? No, no. Oh no, there's a hundred percent a bunch of money in this pocket. But he's the. In fact, I think probably because it's Marvel Studios, it's more likely that he's the only credited producer. Yeah, I mean, like, because they're probably like, not going to credit all the actual money that well i mean they, yeah, i get that but there i mean there's there's i mean i i see these movies all the time when they win best picture there's always like three four producers who actually like accept the oscar for it right you know like i think um george miller when he won for uh, wait no, no he didn't that, win for mad max don't be sorry silly. that was in my that was in my like dream <laughs> when he won for happy feet oh yes okay when he won for happy feet i don't think he was the only one who accepted the Oscar for that movie. Mm-hmm. No, it was Bill Miller, George Miller, and Doug Mitchell. Like, there's always like three or four at least, and they two represent, you know, just parts of 
an amazing amount of work that goes into making these movies on the producing side, not even just on the creative side. Yeah. But I guess Kevin Feige is the only one who worked on Black Panther. Cool. Okay. Great. I mean, I'm hey, getting, that, getting that aside. It's a bit arbitrary, I think, how they determine who gets producing credit. But yeah. I don't know. I feel like chaotic. Hey, they need they need some reforms, but it won't won't be the first time. That's stupid. What you said. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Without further adieu. All right. So, I suppose I should come forward with my case for putting these two movies next to each other. Um. So actually, the 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 impetus for it was like kind of kind of shallow. Um, I Shadow just la 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 la. <laughs> I just heard both movies compared to Taxi Driver. Um, one right. of which, you know, obviously because Paul Schrader wrote both Taxi Driver and First Reformed and directed First Reformed. Um, and you were never really here because it's also about this damaged person who ends up in basically a mission to save a young girl from her abusers. And the more I thought about it, the more I saw these two movies as very interesting takes on the well-worn movie, you know, the story of a misanthropic anti-hero who ends up trying to secure his redemption by saving a, well, in the case of you're never really here by saving a woman or saving a girl in the case of first reformed of trying to get holy retribution for what he views as unholy crimes against humanity. Um, But it, it, you know, in that case, a woman also kind of becomes a fixation of his. And I, I was just the different perspectives of these movies were, were very interesting to me. And then thinking about it more, I was, it, it, I started viewing in particular first reformed a lot differently than I did after I first saw it. And, uh, yeah, so let's just get into that first. Yeah, I mean, I have no problem with the pairing. We we pair we paired weirder movies before. I mean, this is yeah. these do have a lot of similar threads. Mm-hmm. Um, as I think I even told you when you first pitched these, I was like, I hear what you're saying. I do think you're shortchanging uh, one movie or like underwriting it a little to well, and I, and fit I kinda, it into that square peg. And I kind of knew what you were. I, I think I, you know, knew what you were getting at, which is that I was selling first reformed a particular short because, and, and I kind of was with my initial take on it, um, which is that it, it's kind of taking a, a Paul Schrader, a, a classic Paul Schrader story of, you know, the slow mental decay of an individual angry man, um, <laughs> who 
who stakes all of his hope for redemption in a woman uh, constantly kept at a remove from the narrative, so we never really get any uh, insight into her. Um, and applying that to the topic of climate change, which <laughs> it by its very nature is, which is an interesting like juxtaposition, because climate change by its very nature is a communal issue. So kind of taking this singular, um, just almost... Uh, a solipsistic point of view right. uh, that, that that Schrader's kind of mined throughout his career, and applying it to this seemed, at best, jarring, and at worst, misguided. At least on my first viewing, and I I have changed my tone on that after kind of thinking through the movie, particularly the ending, which is kind of designed to frustrate you initially, right? Um, and kind of reinterpreting it a bit so well, and that's good too because i would love to talk about that because i haven't really had a yes. chance to really chew on the ending too much i actually like talk it through mm-hmm. so so first reformed uh stars ethan ethan hawk as a, a pastor at the fictional first reformed church in a small town in new york well it starts anyway as a debate <laughs> I was almost wondering. It was like ten minutes into the scene. I was like, "Is this going to be the whole movie?" Um, I I would have been weirdly okay with that. No, yeah, me too. I was like, "I'm I'm in." Uh, but the scene does end. But it is it's uh, a Amanda Seyfried, a young uh, pregnant woman, approaches him and asking as for guidance, as for him to talk to her husband, who is in a really dark place. Because he doesn't want to bring a, a child into the world, into this terrible world in which we live, and mm-hmm. he uh, ascribes most of that negative qualities to climate change, and so the debate becomes like, uh, well, wh- what is God's creation? Um, because what's our what's our can, responsibility to it? What's our and yeah? What's our responsibility to it? And if you can say that, oh, you shouldn't get, you shouldn't have an abortion because you're killing God's creation. Well, then what are you doing to the earth? Mm-hmm. Um, and what I honestly love about this movie, and this may not jibe jibe with your take perfectly, mm-hmm. but I think the brilliant part about it is that it purports to be a conversation about abortion and. and climate change and it's about neither of those things right it uses those as vessels to explore some really potent ideas and i think i think primarily the idea is how willing we are to ignore bad things <laughs> like yeah. these horrible things can happen and as long as we're not looking at it they're not there mm-hmm. and i i thought that was i it, it made it more it made it more of a pleasure to sit in the theater than it, the movie of this weight should be yeah um, I, but I, I really enjoyed watching it because it was just as i said that brilliant exploration of those ideas yeah i i, I will say base. i mean you're right that doesn't entirely jive with me but again i have come around on the movie more um than when i first saw it and i think why i was kind of down on it is not it, it's definitely not because it didn't engage me or i thought it was a bad movie actually it, it's probably because I was a little too engaged, a little too early. Like I, I saw that debate scene and I thought I could get a, a read on what the rest of the movie was going to be. And I was 
I was there for it. It was really compelling. <laughs> it was the yeah. first time I had seen it. That kind of dialogue depicted in a narrative movie. It's always like an alarmist document. I shouldn't even use the word alarmist because it's just real life. But it's you know you you see that kind of urgency in a documentary and even like some some moral debate like that but it's always posed in a non-fictional context and so seeing that kind of play out dramatically was really refreshing to me and then you know the movie does take a turn and becomes much more about the mental state of Ethan Hawke's character and it is also kind of interesting to think about it, it everyone watching it probably has a different point at which they disengage from him uh, <laughs> where he like kind of there are a lot, you know, they can share his point of view up to a point and then he it becomes like too hot, you know, too in his own head, too hostile to the people in his life, too alienating, um, and then just kind of it, it just becomes another Paul Schrader movie about a self-destructive recluse, um, which I thought sold the sold the um, what it was grappling with earlier in the movie. Short, I have the way I've changed my tone on that is instead of viewing the end, it, you know, because you basically have this movie that's a slow build of tension and the whole time you're thinking, how is this going to culminate? What's yeah. going to happen? Um, and the ending is such a spectacular anticlimax, mm-hmm. um, which is absolutely deliberate. Like even watching it and feeling kind of that, that disappointment settle in it's, it's obviously deliberate. Um, <laughs> yeah, he wasn't. But, but, yeah. Yeah. And I knew that at the time, but I was just like, how... I think the way I interpreted it immediately was, wow, so Paul Schrader had this concept for, um, you know, exploring how climate change uh, is affecting people existentially and how people of faith are grappling with that. Um, He tried to hammer it into the character study uh you know the 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 self-obsessed character study that he's honed over a career and then didn't know how to end it because those two things are compatible right it fizzled out that was kind of my first impression so i i want to talk about how the movie builds because i think there's a few things that kind of really woke me up to the idea that okay this movie's talking about more than abortion it's talking about more than climate change and Mm -hmm. it's talking about more than faith right yeah Yeah, um it because the the movie is, I think, it takes a very non non judgmental look at the idea of if you ignore ignoring bad things and not ignoring them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because if you don't ignore them, how do you not just implode? Mm-hmm. Because there's so much ter- so much terrible so many terrible things that are happening to the world and to yourself, oftentimes. If you don't ignore them uh, and you pay, that, that's going to become your sole focus, and it will mm-hmm. it will envelop it, you. It'll it'll eat you up. It'll eat you up, right? Like that's yeah. that's a huge that's a legitimate problem with that perspective. Conversely, yes. 
if you just completely ignore those things, isn't that worse? Right. Yeah. I mean, what are the you're letting all these things happen to you to live in this blissful ignorance? And there's, I mean, this is all over the movie. This this idea because it's it starts off with that climate change, um, it start and then it it goes with um, Ethan Hawke's character, Pastor Toller, 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 Toller. Um, he is having serious medical issues. I mean, it there's never from the explic- beginning. It's, it's never explicitly said. It's like, but it looks like some sort of cancer, uh, and it's also you know alcoholism that he's just you know he's destroying his own body and not dealing with it right another this text about what is god's creation but um there's a scene where she's like brushing his teeth and his gums start to bleed and he turns the lights off so he can't see it um and then when he's espousing these ideas uh about climate change to the larger pastor played by uh, Cedric the Entertainer. Cedric the Entertainer, one of um, the most unexpected appearances in the movie. Yeah, the ever. pastor at a larger church, who and he's who's saying like, "Hey, don't get political with this. Don't talk about climate change." And he's like mm-hmm. saying everything. The pastor just turns his chair around so he is not looking at it. Like la 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 la, I can't hear you. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's also the subplot with Toller, who has a, I think her name is Esther, mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, yeah. So she, right. she, it's implied that they had some sort of, I don't know if it was an affair or if it was just outside of marriage. And the thing is, Ethan Hawks clearly hates himself for it. Mm-hmm. And by extension, he hates her for it. Why? Because she, she reminds him that she did something bad and it's easier to ignore it. And those are all the things that I was like, ah, I'm, I'm getting this now. And I like how yeah. you're constantly hammering on this idea of, Facing the bad, facing the bad, or not facing the bad, and not saying that one way is right and one way is wrong. It's actually it's a really worthwhile conversation to have. Um, but then the yeah. ending happened, and I was like, I, I'm still having trouble contextualizing it. Yeah, yeah, and you still feel that way now? Yeah, no, I do. I do have trouble contextualizing this sort of. I don't know. I mean, if it does feel like it, just sort of like picks something right like so, the idea that is if you don't ignore the idea is if you don't ignore the bad stuff you will just implode and i think it's like well that's what happened so it seemed yeah, unceremonious so, so it's now like it's funny because the ending is now kind of emblematic of why both I, I do think that the film to a degree is still um kind of sells itself short on its own premise but I view it more positively now. Actually, it's it's sort of a. I, I I didn't think to phrase it in quite the way you did, but it's I think they're related, and you probably and you actually put it much better. Is just that it kind of shows. I think even just a bit of self awareness on Paul Schrader's part that this story, this this I guess the this narrative form is not equipped to handle these heady modern problems right and like it's not something that using the taxi driver formula for again is going to solve (laughs) there's no comprehensible way out of it and in itself that's almost the existential dread and angst that the movie 
is kind of is exploring um that is that is fair because i think throughout the entire movie i'm asking this question which way is right and it, it kind of is like we don't have an answer for you I think I think Paul Schrader is just like getting at the fact that not only does he not have an answer, we don't have the vocabulary for an answer yet. <laughs> um, yep. and, and maybe that is like again, that's a really cool um, that's a really cool premise to build a movie on. It is also fundamentally unsatisfying and kind of then hints at a, another movie made by a younger artist at some point in the near future that will maybe have a new approach that can address these topics <laughs> um, in a way that we can digest. But for right now, it's just disappointment and frustration. But kind of like, <laughs> God damn it, Star Wars The Last Jedi. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what d- d- what dis- just happened? Disappointment disappointment is a really hard thing to depict in a movie yeah um frustration and being underwhelmed are difficult things to depict in a movie um because you make your audience innately feel those emotions and i I think it's important to know that if you're feeling that it's deliberate and the more i thought about first to form the more it seemed deliberate yeah, um, no, I mean, I do actually really respect the screenplay of this movie and the performances. Yes, I'm surprised. Yes. I'm happy that First Reformed was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. Surprised that Ethan Hawke didn't pick up an actor nomination. Like, I, I think this is, like, like this is a performance. His, it's arguably his best performance ever. I, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. And then I see, like, then I see christian bale's two-hour dick cheney impersonation get get picked up some praise and might even win and i'm just like you gotta you gotta be kidding me yeah i gosh just i don't know thinking of like the pain that plays across his face even when he's like you know talking to kids in the church and like giving them a history lesson and then like you can see his like mental state just slowly (laughs) <laughs> sink into darkness and he's like kind of trying to pull people with him but you know it kind of snaps out of it and all this plays across his face it's yeah it's great and it probably because this is like the closest to not just playing a a w- washed up philosophy student that I've ever seen him play <laughs> yeah, I mean well, that's, that's yeah, not the, whole, some, the whole either. movie is so much it's it's this kind of material is ripe for just some hacky take uh, <laughs> written by as you said a washed up philosophy student yeah and it's done with such a better deft hand than such a more deft hand than that mm-hmm. um so yeah it's it it it, it reappropriates a classic narrative structure um, I, actually, and I still think the the one weak link, and not in terms of a performance, but in terms of character, what her character is is Mar- Amanda Seyfried's Mary, um, yeah, who, who very much just seems like it, the a symbol of lingering the lingering hope of redemption for the main character, um, even down to her name, and that <laughs> just. That just seems like such a weak, um, such a weak element to the movie. 
Wait, wait. So because, the movie with over religious themes has a pregnant woman named Mary. No, no okay, not that. <laughs> the 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 treatment of her character as nothing but the main character's one last chance at redeeming himself and becoming a stable and responsible human. Um, like, I get it. I've seen that a million times before in other movies, many of them written by Paul Schrader. Um, <laughs> I really thought that we had moved beyond stuff like that. And I wish, I, I do think that Amanda Seyfried did a great job with the material given to her, but if you're going to feature her as prominently in this movie as they, as he did, why not give her more of a perspective? We barely even get... Well, she doesn't have a perspective at all. She doesn't have... Well, She's either. an idea is a thing. I don't actually think... I didn't actually see her as, you know, his one hope for redemption, but she really is just this idea of... Hope, not just hope for him, like hope for the world, Right. Like, because she is the person who is living with the bad, but still seeing the good, right? She's and Mm -hmm. the good is the life, both around her and within her. Um, But again, that's not really that's reading into it more than I should have to. Uh, Yeah, we don't even really get that much of her take on, you know, climate change or just like modern existential threats, which her husband is passionately invested in. She says that she feels strongly about it, but obviously not to the same point as her husband. And that's kind of the end of the conversation. He's consumed by it. And and you know what? They could have even run with that. It would have been interesting to kind of see, well, maybe she represents the watered-down middle. Maybe she's the ultimate example of... um, someone who tries to strike a balance and in effect does nothing and, you know, just kind of watches things all go to hell. And all you kind of get from that is no matter if you, you know, whether you ignore the problem entirely or you try to find a middle ground or you become a reactionary and, you know, avenger of God, you know, it, 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 to the point where you view yourself as the Avenger of God, you end up being destructive and hurting people, and nothing good comes of it. Um, and that's pretty bleak, but the subject matter the movie's dealing with is pretty bleak, and that would have at least been interesting and worth talking about. The way it is now, she's just there. She, yeah. she facilitates a pretty trippy space flight with the main character <laughs> and that's the most dramatic agency she has in the entire film um and she she prevents the well i won't she prevents she, a she, far worse ending <laughs> she prevents a far worse ending um she 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 comes along to deny the Quentin Tarantino ending. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, I mean, it's safe to say I definitely did like this movie. I got a lot of the ideas. I found a lot of the ideas exploring to be pretty novel and, mm-hmm. as I said, a worthwhile conversation. 
I think some things like Amanda Seyfried's character really holds it back, as well as my slight reservations about the ending. Although I do like what we sort of, what, what you sort of talked about with not have, being an answer, almost being the really the only way the movie could end and should end responsibly. So yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm I'm cool with this movie. As I said, getting pray, the praise it has, I think it's deserving of more of it. Yeah. yeah, it's one of the better movies I saw from the it's probably from the first half of the year. Yeah, I um, I'm I'm just still fascinated with it by how the movie kind of keeps changing and and recontextualizing itself, thinking back on it, which you know is the sign of a really strong movie, uh, and and one that's worth discussing and and revisiting. Um, I still think that there are artifacts, like honestly, my biggest quibble still being Amanda Seyfried. I kind of view her character and sort of maybe other elements that didn't work for me as like remnants from this sort of dramatic blueprint that just don't quite translate over well to this subject matter, Um, which is maybe why I was more down on it initially, just because I, I, I see these trappings um, why are you trying to squeeze a story about climate change into it? But <laughs> so, um, I've changed my tune on it a bit. Um, actually quite a bit. I like it a lot more now, but, um, yeah, I, I, I still, I still look forward to the, I guess the inevitable movie that finds a way to engage with these ideas with a new narrative, uh, template um, that maybe more comprehensively uh, addresses the topic in a way that that communicates more than just frustration, yeah, <laughs> and and angst and and mental un- instability. Um, speaking of mental instability, speaking of mental instability, um, so yeah, you were never really here. Um, t- honestly, uh, take the synopsis of Taxi Driver and cut it by like half like just just cut all the details cut all the 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 frilly little uh you know the the introspective uh nuances just just (laughs) bare bones a damaged man uh saves a girl from abusers or does she save him (laughs) neither (laughs) uh Neither is the answer. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess she does. He does save her. Well, I guess saves the wrong. I think saves the wrong uh, vocabulary. Even it's. I mean, so uh, that that actually, I I do regret if that makes it sound like I'm down on the movie. Um, I loved. You were never really here. I was wondering. I, think, I was like, man, he hates this. No, I, I, I actually really liked this film. I think it's no, pretty I, good. No, I actually <laughs> no, I actually loved it. Um. Because it it is it takes a genre the the revenge uh, the the revenging Avenger um, and a strips it down to its essentials b makes it about the trauma mm-hmm. um, that the character has sustained and how they go forward with it. It it moves that from being 
just a a piece of backstory or something that explains characteristics of of the protagonist and makes it dead center at the heart of the story um and in a way that's never entirely comprehensible to the audience we get like flashes of his abusive childhood but it's all in like a very um disorienting like yeah. like almost like cro- like patchwork of moments of pain that just kind of come back to him in a flash um and it, it's not like a direct one-on-one like oh this is why he does this you know oh, no. it, this no, the movie doesn't boil down motivations to those simple things which i really like no it's just he is some because of it you get the sense that he is just someone who is unable to seamlessly integrate into society and instead of actually another refreshing element instead of using that as an excuse to become a reclusive misanthrope he actually does commit himself to saving people despite despite his incredible incredibly ever-present suicidal tendencies and like how much he oh yeah doesn't want to live there's like a first shot that we see him i think is like him laying in bed like holding a knife over his face and it's like yeah maybe maybe i'll kill myself yeah and, yeah well, well and, maybe and, not today and, and he's got a bit of a ritual where he you know will put a put a plastic bag over his head and, yeah yeah you know. I mean, I love how much subtext there is in this movie and how Lynn, Ram- Lynn Ramsey elects to show way more often than she does tell. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things I was worried about with this movie is, and I think this actually would make a good pairing for in some sort of segment in the future, um, but it, I was worried about seeing another drive um, mm-hmm. because the movie first starts and we have this like bopping like 80s synth style music happening and with with Joaquin Phoenix as this this hired gun guy who's like killing people which I know it's not exactly Ryan Gosling's character in Drive he was just a driver who occasionally mm-hmm. killed people but yeah. um, Drive is definitely one of those movies in the vein of like Tarantino that just like revels in its violence because it's cool. Because it wants it's so to be cool. cool. It's like it's badass and stuff like that. And like this is not you were never really here. Um, yeah. I mean, most of the, the most violent scenes in the movie are shot from like these grainy, far off security cameras. Like you see him like hit someone in a hallway, like down a hallway with a hammer mm-hmm. with no sound. It's and, and yeah. as I said, it's not really in focus. You're you're not like splatting blood on his face in an elevator or something. It just sort of is happening because it's not really the focus of the movie. I, I kind of admire that that it's it has this violence without just like without really loving it. Well, yeah. How does a movie show? Some, I mean, doesn't a movie just immediately glamorize everything that it depicts? How do you get around that? How do you depict a a brutal act in a way that like communicates its undesirability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I think that's pretty brilliant. And and kind of going off that, you know, you said 
you appreciate how much she shows and doesn't tell. I, I appreciate how much she does neither. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, fair. Like how much is left a, a, as just a matter of, of speculation or, or implication or just as shorthand, like, Hey, you, you don't need this superfluous piece of information. You don't need to know how this you know how Joaquin Phoenix's character knows this guy um you just you can put the pieces together yourself what 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 matters is the an exploration of trauma and how that can manifest into violence um and how does a person who can really only express themselves in violent acts commit to to make their best attempt at least at being a good person yeah, I mean, and even in the most, like, even when the people trying to kill him do, like, the most reprehensible things, there's this great scene where there's someone that Joaquin Phoenix has just mortally wounded, and he's sort of, like, talking him through his death, almost, and they, like, they end up, like, laying down on the floor and, like, faintly singing a song together. That, that's actually my favorite scene in the movie. It's it's wonderful, and um, and that's the kind of thing, it's not, like retribution you know he's not carving a swastika into his face or something like that you know it's it's not we're we're not seeing this really as like a victory we're Mm -hmm. just seeing this as like a thing and that joaquin phoenix shows like empathy with this dying man and and maybe even envy (laughs) yeah i like it it hammers home how (laughs) hammers home yes Shut up! How how freaking good of an actor Joaquin Phoenix is, and like we've known so we've, we've we've known this for okay. Well, I I had to actually learn it um, with the master. I I didn't really appreciate Joaquin Phoenix before then, um, but he gives a great performance in Signs. Uh huh. <laughs> I will defend that movie I, forever. I'm sure he, I'm actually sure he does. I haven't. It's been a long a long time, but like. I think the the real virtue he embodies in this film is being able, and, and even more specifically in that scene, is being able to depict a killer who is not just indifferent, he genuinely feels the violence he inflicts. Mm-hmm. And like you said, maybe at a, you know, at a, not even maybe, at a deeper level, longs for it himself but he is he is in anguish at the pain he has to inflict and not in a way that you know we're where not in a way that feels like it's just there to give the audience a proper sense of disavowal so that they are allowed to appreciate the violence no no um like i feel like lynn ramsey is very aware in this movie of the tricks that are used to get audiences to uh accept or even endorse violence um there's actually a really great uh youtube video by uh one of my favorite creators contrapoints about violence where she contrasts something like law and order with a clockwork orange so see we're not the only ones who make outlandish comparisons on the show um <laughs> Uh, where like uh, something like Law and Order will basically give you a, a similar, at least volume of violence to A Clockwork Orange, but 
it'll try and give you that moral disavowal, that justification that allows you, that makes it okay to enjoy it because it's happening to bad people. If the yeah. cop loses cool and, you know, starts beating on a witness, it's because they weren't cooperating or they're being, you know, they're, they're being naughty. They, they need to get smacked around a little bit. So it's okay to enjoy it. Whereas a clockwork orange doesn't make any pretense. It doesn't have that disavowal. Uh, I mean, I I'll, like, I'll use a more mainstream example, Dexter, maybe? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. A show of, like whose premise is it's okay to kill bad people and it's okay for you to enjoy watching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's... And, and one could even argue, like, Hawkwork Orange kind of fails at that to a degree, because or not fails, I guess, but it's still... The, the, the violence depicts can still be interpreted as glorified. Um, to, you know, even just down to the fact that it inspired copycat killers um, or copycat crimes. Uh, no one's going to be inspired by the violence in You Were Never Really Here. It is, it's like, it's like Lynn Ramsey has gone above and beyond to remove any sense of disavowal and any, um, anything that could glorify this violence and this lifestyle. Um, I, she really wanted to get at the hurt beneath the beneath the glossy surface that a movie like Drive revels in. Yeah, and that's what I appreciated so much about it. Um, and, and and I get why that can be disappointing as a viewer, but honestly, to me, that it it just seemed more genuine. It seemed like a more honest a, set, a, a more honest dissection of this type of movie character and why they are the way they are and why they're in pain. Uh, I want to, I want to briefly get into spoiler territory here. Because, sure. Sure. Um, and in light spoilers, because like he, he does sort of save the girl at the end. We already kind of mentioned that. Um, yeah. but I think what's more interesting is like his reaction to it. It's, it's like nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. It's like nothing. He does not feel accomplished. He is not any happier than he was before. The only thing that's different is that the sun went up twice and he now has, but one more saved traffic girl to, you know, check off the list. And he like, he's still very obviously longing for death, contemplating suicide. His life is arguably worse than when it was before. In any other movie, this sort of thing we've painted as like a huge, a huge victory it justifies everything he's done and completely changes his perspective on the world. It doesn't. That's not how it is. Like to it's his, empty. in his world, like in his world, in his head, the world is still a terrible place, and mm-hmm. he feels terrible for having to live in it. And you've got to love the uh, the insanely banal music that plays in the diner <laughs> unceasingly. And the last scene of the movie, just like almost as the ultimate, just just almost as the ultimate taunting jester voice looming over it. Like he cannot, he, he has to he has to then try and exist in a world where uh, people are just concerned about paying their check at a diner <laughs> that's playing this goofy song. Like it's, yeah. The, the um, soundtrack in, in general is just great. It's it is. used so well for these ironic purposes sometimes. And, and, and even the uh, the non-diegetic stuff, like 
I know that you, you, you referenced the synth at the beginning, but mm-hmm. it does not stay that way. Like it, there's no, a lot of no. variety in the soundtrack. It goes from synth to like industrial to um, like prog at one point. Like it's it's very diverse and it it shifts with the care you know it i don't know it shifts at you know the different tonal points of the movie it's very cool um and and not just the riff on on drive i would actually put like honestly because this didn't turn out to be the you know first reform good uh or sorry first reform bad uh you were never really here good type of dichotomy that i i thought it was when i first made the comparison which is good it's it's a lot more nuanced but if we did it with drive i would be if we did <laughs> very drive, much. i would be very much inclined to to cast it as as drive bad you were never really here good yeah um, go yeah. ahead go ahead at me i don't like drive no it's, i know i'm yeah I, I get it i understand the perspective i remember liking it at the time but thinking back on it i'm like mm. i'll never say it's not a well-made movie but you know, yeah. I'm I, I I feel like Lynn Ramsey did a very necessary biopsy of of <laughs> genre, right? Um, and and yeah, I I just I found it a lot more a lot more prescient. And yeah, I mean, um, a lot of people are going to be talking about this movie too once the award season rolls. Wait, <sighs> yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever did anyone expect this to get anything i i i doubt it no I, no i mean i think like amazon is uh, like a few steps behind netflix i think and netflix is only just getting a lot of awards praise so mm-hmm. it's gonna it'll take a little bit before movies like this can get appreciated well amazon at least had like uh manchester that's true but it also manchester had like a pretty sizable theatrical release that i don't think you you were never really here did no that's true correctly that's like true. it had i think it had a small release in in april but then was just uh and then it was just a uh, release just on amazon yeah um well whatever you get to enjoy it no yeah, it's it's great I it's enjoy- on prime right now if you got prime Go ahead enjoy and watch weird, it. Enjoy is, is a it? weird word. Oh, I just said enjoy is a weird word for, oh, okay, for the movie. Right. But t- I mean, it's great. It's a great movie. Yeah, it's all, I, I it, really it also like just it. it probes a dark place. <laughs> it's very dark. Both of these movies are very dark. Yeah. We reviewed both of them together. If you watch both of them together, I hope you're okay afterwards. We're here yeah. for you. Go ahead I and add us. A, I watched them uh uh, one after the other in t- like two days, like oh, so that was fun. Yeah, yeah. You uh, so next week we're gonna try to do some some newer stuff. Uh, if Beale Street could talk is just making the rounds. Mike has pledged to see it soonish. So if, if Beale Street could talk, maybe Mike and James can talk about Beale Street. Oh my God. <laughs> Never mind. It's off. <laughs> no. So that's good, definitely going to be on the on the agenda for next week, and we'll probably talk in the meantime about what, if anything else, we want to do. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Jam Cozy, and I'm at Twitter at Michael Leiden eight nineteen. And it was a great show this week, and it's going to be a great show next week. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>